Joker and I broke up. I wanted a fresh start. But it turns out I wasn't the only Damon Gotham looking for emancipation. Welcome to Sequelitis. My name is Manny, and joining me today on this episode is Jonas Barnes, previous guest of the show. If you have not listened to that episode that he joined us on, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. And if you're not following Jonas Barnes, make sure that you are. Really, really funny guy very talented and we will shout out all the different ways that you can find Jonas follow him check out some of his writing and other talents but uh Jonas welcome to Zequelitis hey what's up man I'm glad to be back thanks for having me again yeah thanks for coming back so we're gonna have a little bit of fun today and we are going to talk about uh some movies first movie we want to discuss is a movie that was released earlier this year was it last late last year that it came out yeah it was earlier this year yeah Birds of Prey And to be more specific, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, 2020 DC Universe movie starring the great Margot Robbie, a character that she previously played in Suicide Squad. Yeah, it's actually, it's Margot Robbie. (laughs) (laughs) That that might not be the only time you'll have to correct me on that. Every time I think of her name, I think of people saying it two different ways. And I'm like, uh, Margot Robbie, so sorry. Yeah, yeah, you're you're saying it with her Australian accent, is what you're doing. (laughs) She's Australian? Yeah, she's Australian. Oh, shoot. I did not realize that. I guess I just haven't I haven't heard her in like an interview clip before. Yeah, when you hear when you hear her in an interview clip, it's really weird because you're so used to her doing movies as an American, you know, just as an American actress. And then when she does her interviews, oh, her goodness. accent is heavy. It's not a nuanced accent. Like it's wow. it's definitely there. Well, shit, I got to go and uh, catch some interview clips of her now. Yeah. I first uh became aware of her in Wolf of Wall Street. She was awesome in that. Mm-hmm. Uh very intense role. She did a great job with it, and I kind of feel like that's the point where her career really uh, broke out. It was, for sure. I mean, she had done a couple of bit parts prior to that. I know she actually did movies prior to that, for sure, but everybody really knew her from that part. Like, that was her breakout role, for sure. And she went on to do I, Tonya. And of course, Suicide Squad. Uh, I thought she was pretty great in Itanya. I feel like that's a little bit of an uneven movie, but uh, she really carried it and made it a great movie. See, Itanya, I loved, um, absolutely loved it. The only thing that I had an issue with with Itanya at all was the fact that they put her acting up against Allison Janney. And Allison Janney is so fucking good that it's so hard to compete with her and um allison janney doing the part that she did in that movie playing you know tanya harding's mom she did so well that it almost made you know margot robbie's part um kind of second fiddle just as far as acting goes and that's the only part that i really saw as uneven aside from that i love the movie no it's a very good movie and it's real easy to get drawn into it and of course uh, I don't know how much you remember of that incident from your childhood. I definitely remember a lot of details from it because it was just one of those stories. It was kind of like the uh, O.J. Simpson trial yeah. for, for a couple of months there. And, and so seeing the inside look of it, of course, it's it's highly dramatized and everything. That was really interesting. Uh, I thought Sebastian Stain, he was he was good in that. But um, the guy who plays his uh, henchman, I know the guy's name. It's, a, it's the same guy that played Richard Jewell, right? Yeah, same same actor yeah. who played uh, Richard Jewell. Yeah. And Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, 
played Sean. He was awesome. He's one of those dudes that, like, when I saw that he was playing Richard Jewell, I was kind of excited because he's one of those dudes that whenever he shows up in a movie, he kills it. Like, he's pretty consistently a very good addition to any movie. So the fact they gave him a starring role in Richard Jewell especially going up against somebody you know like sam rockwell and john ham and like these people that are you know heavy hitter actors and kathy bates good god yeah like going up against kathy bates that's like that's a tall act to follow right there and he more than held his own he did great oh yeah honestly i'm just not a fan of clint eastwood of his movies that he's directed so you know seeing that richard jewell was a clint eastwood joint like, that was something where I was just like, you know what? Like, I, I just don't think I'm interested in this. But everything I've I've seen and heard about the movie is his performance is, is really great. But then it's crazy because whenever you look at all of the marketing for it, it would list him like fourth or fifth down the line. His name was not, you know, the first name up, even though he plays the title character of the movie. So I got to watch that and see what's up. Right. Yeah, you definitely should watch it because I'm kind of in the same boat with Clint Eastwood's movies. I mean, to be honest with you, I like Gran Torino um, for what it was. Um, I like that movie. I did not like The Mule at all. Oh, yeah. I hated that movie, actually. But Richard Jewell was really good. Uh, Mystic River was also, like, it was okay. You know, it was good. But, like, the problem with Clint Eastwood's movies is that a lot of them are really, really Really slow and drawn out yeah and Richard Jewell it was kind of along the same vein like it was slow but it wasn't even close to as slow as the other ones because there was more going on um, and it's also a more interesting story especially because it's a true story oh yeah the story of uh, Richard Jewell and exactly what happened to him and the um, was it the 96 Atlanta Olympic bombings I believe it was 96 yeah yeah I mean that was super interesting again like kind of going back to uh, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan those were all things that kind of occurred while I was in you know either junior high or high school and it was just one of those stories where every day you'd go home and turn on the news and there'd be like new development in this story and it was it was nuts yeah absolutely but let's get to Birds of Prey. So we've both seen Suicide Squad, obviously. Yeah. For me, like, that was a movie that I just, I have not been as interested in DC films outside of the Batman releases as I have been in, like, Marvel or, or really anything else kind of in the genre. And Most people haven't. Yeah. That's not just you. Yeah. But it's crazy because there are people that are super defensive about these DC movies, and I don't quite understand why. I mean, I could speculate on, on the reasons, but there were people that, you know, at the time were very heavy defenders of the movie, and it's sad because the movie is at best mediocre, but most of the time it just spends its time being a disappointing mess. Are you talking about Suicide Squad? Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the thing with DC movies. The DC Extended Universe, I think a lot of people... The thing with DC movies, aside from the Batman releases is that they're consistently mediocre to bad. So there's no movie in the DC Extended Universe that stands out as, like, an incredible movie. Like, Marvel has those standouts where most of them are mediocre to good. There's very few Marvel releases that are just straight-up bad. Whereas with DC, there's some that are straight-up bad. The majority of them are very mediocre, and there's none that stand out as, like, really just really, really good movies. But there's some that are well-made. Like, if you look at them, if you're comparing... Comparing them to Marvel, you're doing them a disservice because they're in the same genre as far as being a comic book film. But aside from that, they're two completely different looks and feels and two completely different sides of the coin. 
So, with the DC movies, all of them have kind of the same look. And also, you can say the same for Marvel. The only difference is that Marvel has a look that's consistently good, whereas DC has a look that's consistently mediocre. And with DC, the ones that are mediocre to good are actually pretty solid in their own merit. So if you have something like, uh, look at Wonder Woman. The Wonder Woman movie was not bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. You know, it wasn't as much of a mess as a lot of the other movies were. Then you have something like Batman vs. Superman, which was atrocious. It was so bad. Oh, yeah. And then, like, Justice League was awful. And Justice League, I think, was one of those ones that kind of had the problem of it being too much going on at the same time. And them trying to figure out, like, how to characterize too many characters for one film with not enough prior buildup. Yeah, or even... It would be like them trying to do Avengers Endgame in the middle of the Avengers story. It just wouldn't have worked, you know? Not only because it's the end of the story, but also because there's too many characters to try to put on one screen that the audience doesn't already know about, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, even if they just try to do uh, the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, right after they made uh, the Hulk movie, the one with Edward Norton. Yeah. You would you would just be watching and you're like, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I don't I don't know enough about these characters, so I don't know how to feel. And that's the same way about Suicide Squad. I felt like they they had an opportunity to do something that was interesting and contrast what Marvel was doing. Is if they said like, okay, we're going to instead of leading off setting up our version of the Avengers. We're going to set up our version of the Suicide Squad. Right. And instead, they just kind of jumped in. That's another thing, too, is I think just on a whole, and this is not based on any kind of like evidence or research that I've done. I'm just farting out my own opinion there. Sure. But I want to say that people, on average, just your moviegoers, are more familiar with the Marvel characters than they are with the DC characters, especially when you start getting to, like, Tier 2 and Tier 3, which I'm not even sure if the majority of the characters in Suicide Squad would qualify for Tier 3. Yeah, they... I mean, you're talking about sub-villains. Right. You're 100% correct in that. I mean, as far as people being, you know, aware of the actual properties, people are a hell of a lot more aware of the Marvel ones than they are of DC. Because when people think DC, they think Superman, they think Batman. Yeah. And then that's about it. And then the characters that go within those universes. But they don't think about the other ones, especially the ones that are within the Suicide Squad story arc. And when it comes to Suicide Squad, the problem with it is that they tried to go for a certain motif and a certain look in that movie. Yeah. And it ended up being just extremely sloppy. And it ended up being all over the place. And a lot of it had to do with the tone that they were going for. But the other thing about Suicide Squad that's interesting is that I think there's certain comic book properties that you have to push an R rating with. Like, obviously Deadpool. You had to do an R rating with Deadpool or it would have been a watered down just shitty movie. And that was the same thing that ended up happening with like Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider was a terrible movie and a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was PG-13 and cheesy. Suicide Squad is one of those ones that has the same situation. Suicide Squad is, if you actually go back and look at it in the comic book, it's a very, very, very adult R-rated property within the comic books. So when they made it a PG-13 movie, it almost came across as like the Jerry Bruckheimer Batman films, where it was too neon, it was too explodey, there was too many sparks, there was too many, like, there was no blood when somebody got shot, just the action scenes came across real cheesy because of it and things like that. I mean, saying that it's a mess is, you know, just a generous uh, way of, of kind of summing it all up 
And, you know, of course, if anybody knows anything about this movie, they're very aware of a lot of the issues that it had. Just with the fact that they set out making one movie and then they tried to, in post, turn it into a totally different movie. And it was all in response to what Marvel was doing and what was successful for Marvel. I I think originally what they had was just a mediocre movie that might have gotten a little bit lucky at the box office, but most likely would have turned out to be a disappointment. And they panicked on that and they fucked it up even more in what they did. And of course, the thing that really stands out about the movie is just the the controversy surrounding Jared Leto's interpretation of the Joker, which that's one of the interesting things about Birds of Prey is that he is very obviously absent from the movie. So I have to say something about the Joker thing. So one thing that people need to know about me is that the Joker as a character is my favorite villain in all of comic books. And that's just the character itself. And it's been interpreted so many different ways from so many different people, from so many different artists, etc., etc., that the Jared Leto one was such a far change from the other ones that as soon as people saw his character, just like just the first vision of his character, they immediately were not sold on it. And he was already fucked. Yeah. Like straight up. And my opinion is like, is that Heath Ledger played the best one just the best general interpretation of it. But here's what I will say about Jared Leto's. As much as I didn't like it, I mean, I hated it, he also only got, like, I want to say maybe 10 minutes of screen time in the whole film. So you didn't even really get to flesh out his version of the character in that movie at all. Aside from him just being visually what he was and being, like, this weird, you know, punk rock pimp. Like, it was just, it was a very weird, very interesting look. Um, But it was also a very interesting you know, interpretation of the character. And there's a couple of parts that he did that did stand out as being like the sadistic, psychotic, psychopathic, like Joker that people are used to. But that's where he didn't get any time to breathe, I guess is the best way to put it. My understanding too is that based on things that he said and and others that were involved with the production have said, it's not for a lack of trying on their part. They did shoot scenes with him. And my understanding is they did write like him as more of a major character within the film, as opposed to just someone who kind of makes an extended cameo which is what the final product was and so my guess on that is a lot of it had to do with their reaction to hey people are not liking this interpretation of the character and we've got to try and reduce his role in the film as much as possible because then you jump forward to late last year and you have this fantastic interpretation of a joker i don't know it's really difficult to say that that is the joker what um Joaquin Phoenix portrayed in the eponymous film. Right. But it's a sign that what what Jared Leto was doing wasn't working, that they chose like, hey, you know what? We're going to go in a totally different direction. And then that ended up winning awards. It it has gone on to be the top grossing superhero movie so far, right? Right. And it was a completely different interpretation, completely different look, but it also is not within the same, it's not within the DC Extended Universe. Yeah. And it's also a completely standalone take on it. And what it did is it took a bunch of different Joker origin stories and blended them into one film. So that's why I think that worked as well as it did, because it took some of the most popular origin stories and turned it into a movie. But the thing is with Jared Leto's is I think they went the wrong direction. I think cutting that much out of his stuff actually hurt it more than it helped it, because I think if they would have fleshed it out a little bit more and they would have given him more room to breathe, 
and like put more of his scenes in there so people actually would have seen what the character was supposed to be it would have came across better but the whole reason that he got essentially axed from the birds of prey movie was also because once the movie once suicide squad came out jared leto was pissed because they cut as much of his stuff out of the movie as they did. Yeah. So he didn't want anything to do with the property anymore at all. Well, and he was also super pissed, according to reports. You know, I don't know him personally. But he was also super pissed whenever the announcement was made that they were making a standalone Joker film with Joaquin Phoenix. Because I remember last summer there was, you know, talk of they were going to do two standalone Joker films, which I'm just like, I mean, come on, how many years do you guys need to, like, figure this shit out? You're still, like, unsure of which Joker are we going to do and what what the hell is going on here? It would have been really interesting to see what they would have come up with if they would have done a standalone film with Jared Leto's Joker. But I think it would have been kind of the same boat as, like, talking about Suicide Squad or Justice League or Batman versus Superman to where it's just like you got this fucking fantastic mess and at best you would have been like well I mean, it was okay but I like the Joaquin Phoenix film a lot better and I still think Heath Ledger's interpretation is the best interpretation well also the Joaquin Phoenix one is essentially really not it's not even really a comic book film no it's a much more humanized version of the character if you listen to the episode that we did on that that's one of the things that we talked about was this is a movie that you could take out the references to Batman and the thing that you're going to end up doing is you'll you'll still have a film that its strengths are its strengths its weaknesses are its weaknesses but you won't get the same box office numbers because you don't have that tie-in to a well-known, very beloved property. Right, 100%. Let's uh, get on to talking about Birds of Prey. You referenced Deadpool earlier, and that's an R-rated film, an incredibly successful film. Both of them did pretty well. Right. Second one, not regarded as highly as the first, but it showed that you could do a comedic and violent take on a superhero property and have success with that. And so you have Birds of Prey, which seemed to kind of try to emulate that a little bit. And to me, it's, it's kind of weird because I didn't think about the fact that this is an R-rated movie. And it very much is, but it's like the bubblegum version of that. Yeah, the thing that's interesting about Harley Quinn's character... So here's another thing. Harley Quinn's character is one of my favorite characters. And I got introduced to her character when I started getting really into the Joker, you know, in comic books. And that kind of ended up being a thing where Harley Quinn, I mean, if you're if you're used to the Joker's character, she's a big part of the Joker's story in general. And she didn't like really get her own standalone thing until pretty far into the Joker's story. So the thing that I liked about it is the tone of the movie very much is Harley Quinn as a character. So if they would have tried to make it serious, like super serious, it wouldn't work. Like there would have been a really weird dichotomy going on and it would have it wouldn't have fit and like the whole punk rock version of Harley Quinn i think is a much better choice than like the court jester version of Harley Quinn, I guess is the best way to put it, because she's been portrayed as that in comic books as well. But yeah, you're very much right about that. It is a bubblegum version of the R-rated comic book film, but it's like bubblegum punk, almost. Oh yeah, it's not trying to be something like cutesy, and it's not going for like a chibi thing. And I agree with you that you can't do a... Like, you would not be able to do the Joker treatment for this character. It just wouldn't work. But the thing for me is that I feel like... 
there is a lot of things that they could have done with this that if they would have been willing to allow themselves to be bold and to really learn from the mistakes that they made in the past, because you could definitely do something that is hyper-violent, but is very kinetic, that is very fun, that is bright and colorful, and at the same time, like, have blood splashing around. And this did attempt to do that, but it also worked in some really bizarre things that felt like it kept tripping over itself in trying to tell the story that it wanted to tell. Right. So I, I want to tell you something that's kind of going to it's gonna blow your mind a little bit here. Okay. And the thing with Harley Quinn as a character is that she's not a killer. She is a servant, and she's always known as a servant. And she even says that at one point in the film. She says the role of a, Har a Harley Quinn's role is to serve, which also goes back to the title of the movie, which is a completely different conversation. That was a total misfire of a title for the movie. That's one of the reasons that it didn't do very well. But calling it the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn is literally because her entire role throughout her character arc has been as a servant to the Joker. So as soon as the Joker's out of place, she gets to kind of get her own story. The thing is with her own story is that the entire city of Gotham hates her guts, and she didn't even realize it because she was always dating the Joker. So here's the thing about her. She's not a murderer. She's not a killer. She's actually not even somebody who likes to take lives. Even if you look at it in the background of the actual comic book character itself, she's usually not the one that does the killing. She's usually the one that does the brains of the operation, and then the Joker's the one that kills people. So when you watch the movie, that's where a lot of things come into play that I don't think if people don't know the character, it'll just come across as weird in the movie. So like there's a scene in the movie where she breaks into the jail because she's trying to break some out and she shoots a bunch of cops in it but she doesn't kill any of them she shoots them with like glitter shells and paint and like stuff like that and like she incapacitates them like breaks their legs and like stuff like that but she doesn't actually kill anybody and I think that whole idea threw a lot of people off because it kind of made it look almost too cartoony, so to speak. Because if you're shooting somebody with a shotgun and the shotgun shell hits the guy in the chest and a bunch of glitter flies out, if you don't see the reason why, you're going to look at that and be like, what the fuck is this? You know, like that's that's like cutesy shit. What's going on? No, I saw that scene and I got it and I was like, more of the movie needs to be like this. It needs to be much, much more focused on her going through and at first you take your, your three-act structure and you, you have your inciting incidents, you know, she breaks it off with the Joker and that would have been a great opportunity to actually have the Joker, at the very least, if, if you don't want to put Jared Leto in the movie, like, you know, shoot around that, shoot the back of another actor's head and, and give a sense of that. Which they did. They did a couple of times. They did that a couple of times. Okay. Then then maybe for about five seconds. Yeah. Like <laughs> maybe I'm just kind of misremembering a little bit. Well, no. They shot the back of his head twice. Okay. But it was literally just like for five seconds. It was not. There was no meat to it at all. So I blinked and I missed it. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so what bothers me is that what the story goes on to be is it isn't so much of Harley Quinn. Like the movie isn't focused purely on, hey, let's let's make Harley Quinn her own independent person, her own independent anti-hero, which could be really fun. I mean, you know, just the concept of that seems very fun, especially if you are someone who is a fan of the character. And I, I like the character. I think she's fun and I like the actresses as well. Right. But instead it becomes this plot of she's working in service of Black Man which, I mean, I'm not well-versed enough with the comics to know. doesn't really matter, but I, I wasn't crazy about Ewan McGregor's portrayal of the character. I felt like he was having fun, but he wasn't doing something that made it fun for the audience. And then he has Chris Mazzina as uh, Zazaz. Zaz? Whatever. Uh, Victor Zaz? His henchman. Yeah. Victor Zaz, yeah. 
Thank you. That performance really threw me off because there was somebody else that pointed it out and they're just like, yeah, this guy looks like a fucking like Euro club DJ. Right. You know, and then he's also going around cutting off people's faces for this guy, Black Mask. Here's the thing about Victor Zaz, though. Victor Zaz's character is a true psychopath in the sense that he has no regards for human life whatsoever, and his entire goal is to hurt people, and that's why he carves a cut into his body every time he kills somebody. So his whole thing is literally just causing pain to people. He has no other story arc. As far as characters go in the comic books, he's about the most one-dimensional character that you could possibly get in the sense that he doesn't really have any other backstory. He's just a piece of shit. He's just a psychotic, wants to hurt people, wants to kill people, piece of shit. He has no supernatural powers. He has no specific thing that sets him aside, aside from the fact that he carves a, you know, a cut into his body every time he kills somebody. Yeah. And that's why I think that character, when it came to being Black Mask's hired muscle, I guess... That's why I guess that fit, because he didn't really need to have anything else, because he isn't anything else. He's just a psychopath that wants to kill people, and Black Mask can use him as the one that's going to kill people, so that he can keep himself off the radar. See, and here's where you can do something interesting with that, because when you say this character in the comic books is pretty one-dimensional, one-dimensional characters aren't very entertaining for the audience to watch, because you can figure them out real quickly, and there's no intrigue to their decision-making process. You're just like, yeah, no, they're going to do this unless something comes along and interrupts them, and then they're going to have to you know, either run away or figure out a way to solve the problem. Agree. But that's not interesting, because you're not going to see them do something that you didn't expect to see them do. And if you're going going to go with the theme of we're emancipating the right-hand man, the henchman is becoming their own person, then you can do an interesting plot there where if you set up Black Mask as, well, there's a power vacuum and I'm going to take over the things that the Joker has lost, you know, and then Victor Zaz is his version of Harley Quinn, then you can have a dynamic where you get Harley Quinn convincing Victor Zaz to not be the henchman for Black Mask. Right, I mean, you definitely could have done that, but I think Victor Zaz was a throwaway character, kind of on purpose. But they give him a lot of screen time, though. Well, yeah, they give him a lot of screen time because he was the guy that was doing the bidding for Black Mask. But what I mean as a throwaway character, as in, I mean that in the sense of, like... Once this movie's over, nobody's going to remember Victor Zaz, and they're not going to give a fuck about Victor Zaz. And so, even though he had a lot of screen time, his role in the movie was just that. He was literally just a, you know, he was just a henchman. He just happened to be a high-level henchman. But I do agree with you, they could have done more with it. Victor Zaz, by far, to me, was the least interesting part of the characters, because... I know the Victor Zaz character, and I still didn't give a shit about him. Like, he just was there. So, yeah. I didn't actually give a fuck about him existing. Like, when he died, I didn't care. You know, spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, I, like, I didn't give a shit about that. The thing with Black Mask, though, this is interesting, because Black Mask, the Roman Sionis character, the whole peeling the faces off thing, that literally is part of the Black Mask character. That's why one of the reasons that he's called Black Mask is that he's obsessed with masks. He's obsessed with faces. He's obsessed with people's look, you know, that type of thing. And his intimidation tactic is that he tears their face off and just leaves them to die. So, like, that's his, that's his quote-unquote signature. But I think what Ewan McGregor did with the character is he made it fun because he was psychotic, but he was flamboyant. And then also he fleshed out the character of being like the black sheep of the family. The black sheep of the family became Black Mask. So the whole Sionis family is supposed to be this mega wealthy, mega powerful, like can get anything, blah, blah, blah type of family. 
So like they're almost like the dark version of the Waynes in that sense. Yeah. But Roman Sionis is the one that's on the outskirts of the family. He's the one that's kind of shunned. He didn't get any of their money. He didn't get any of their power. He didn't get any of that stuff. So he created his own empire, but his whole flamboyance and his whole persona in the movie is very much like a shell because you can see when somebody doesn't do what he wants, he kind of breaks down. And if somebody embarrasses him or if somebody does something that he interprets as embarrassing him, he freaks out. Like, he's a very, very fragile character, actually. And when he puts the mask on, that's where that fragility goes away. So there actually is more deepness to the character. And I think, if anything, they didn't do enough with it to actually flesh it out enough. Because I think they almost, like... They spent too much time on just showing him initially and not actually giving him his own real story arc. Because he just he was little more than just the guy that was trying to kill Harley the yeah. whole time. That's the thing. Like I'm seeing an, a more interesting version of this movie where they do do something where you go into a little... If you're going to have Black Mask and Roman Roman Sionis, you, know, you, you can have something to where it's just like, yeah, you do... I mean, because they do try to show that he is somebody that is fragile enough to where he hears someone in his club laughing, thinks she's laughing about him, and then proceeds to just humiliate her in a really off-putting fashion, yeah. which really throws off this whole characteristic of him being kind of this happy-go-lucky almost kind of character whenever he's wearing the mask of, like, Roman Sionis, the club owner. Come on down to my club and have a great time. Right. And I feel like you could really do something great to where you could have people, like, doing stuff that is very clearly insulting to him, and you're just like, oh, no, they fucked up. Like, they don't know who they're talking to. And he laughs it off, and then later on, Victor Zaz goes and takes their face and brings it back to him. Sure. And you could even set up something, because I think it's there a little bit, but you could set up something to where you've got a little bit of romance between Victor Zaz and Roman Sionis to where you understand that, like, okay, he's doing a lot of this stuff because he wants to keep this person happy. He wants to get his approval, and it goes so much further beyond just he's doing a job because that's what he's hired to do, or he's doing horrible things to people because he's a very bad, psychotic person. You could throw so much more depth in there. Agreed. The thing with Victor Zaz is that his character is basically only with Roman Sionis because Roman allows him to be the piece of shit that he wants to be the whole time with no punishment with no limits he just he literally is just there to do the killing and to do the fucked up stuff for roman so that roman doesn't have to get his hands dirty and that really is all his character needs because that's all victor zaz is about he just wants to do fucked up shit to people because that's what he likes to do so roman allows him to do that and allows him to do that without being punished and also allows him to do it so that he doesn't get his own hands dirty it kind of like to me it fits together but i do agree with you in the sense that there could have been a lot more done with that because they did cut the wings off you know yeah they did do a lot of it but here's the interesting thing about this whole movie and i think a lot of people are missing the fact that this movie is actually deeper than it comes across on the on the surface because of the way it's presented and also because of just the general idea of the film the movie itself should have been called harley quinn it should have been called Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey if they wanted to put Birds of Prey in there. Because the Birds of Prey themselves, those characters, they have very little to do with the movie overall. And it literally is just an introduction to those characters. Which I think is what it should have been. Like yeah. it's, you know, you have Harley Quinn, you can split it off at that point into a Harley Quinn sequel where it's just Harley Quinn. And then you also have the Birds of Prey sequel that is about the Birds of Prey characters. 
So you have two different branches that you can split off after this movie's done. But the way that they presented the movie should have been more about Harley and less about the Birds of Prey. Less character development on the Birds of Prey themselves. In my opinion. Yeah. Because I think, really, the the whole selling point of the movie is Harley. I mean, that's the number one reason people are going to go and watch this movie for that character. They are either fans of the character, they're fans of uh, Margot Robbie. You know, they, they want to see her go out and play something like that. And I feel like they weighed her down with so much other stuff that really prevented this movie from becoming something much more like a Deadpool. Because in Deadpool, the stuff with the X-Men is almost thrown in there as, as sort of a joke at certain points. It is. It's for sure sold, going off as a joke. And that's the thing about Deadpool. Deadpool's known for breaking the fourth wall, so it worked really well with him. But you couldn't, like, she sort of breaks the fourth wall. Like, does, like, the wink-wink, nudge-nudge at the screen type of thing a couple of times. Yeah. But with Deadpool, that's part of his character. So it fit really well with the Deadpool movie. I think if they would have overdone that in the Harley Quinn movie, it wouldn't have worked well. But the thing about the Harley Quinn movie and the thing about Birds of Prey in general is that each one of the Birds of Prey, they also represent a different kind of trauma. Each one of the characters does, which is why I think the characters were written the way that they were and were presented the way that they were. So, like, Mary Elizabeth Winstead plays Huntress. Yes. And a lot of people kind of shit on that part. Because they didn't think that she was given a good script. They didn't think that she was given a lot to work with. They didn't think the character was well-rounded. Like, there was a lot of things that people were against with that character. But I'm kind of going the other direction. Because her character is very simple, but also very deep. And what I mean by that is her character, as a child, sees her entire family murdered in front of her. And then, once that happens, she goes into PTSD mode and has one entire goal throughout the rest of her life, and that's to take down the people that killed her whole family. So, with that being the goal, she's completely robbed of a childhood. She's robbed of social interaction. She's robbed of personal interaction. She's robbed of everything that a child and that a teenager and that somebody gets growing up. She's robbed of all of that. So, when she comes onto the screen in the movie... Like, that part's very, very briefed over. It's not touched on a whole lot, you know? It gets, like, the, the fast-forward treatment, so to speak. So when her adult character comes onto the movie, she's, for lack of a better term, socially retarded. She doesn't know how to talk. She doesn't know how to communicate with people. She doesn't know how to deal with her emotions. She doesn't know how to be friendly with people. She doesn't know how to interact at all. She just knows one thing. I have to kill these people because these are the people that did this to me. And until that's done, I can't live. Like, I can't have a life. So her character actually is really, it's by the books, but it's by the books almost perfectly because she's not supposed to be this person that's super talkative. She's not supposed to be this person that has a big vocabulary. She's not supposed to be charismatic. She's not supposed to be any of those things because she's in PTSD and like in a hole, you know? So when she comes onto the screen, that's what she portrays. That's what she shows. Whenever she interacts with any of the other characters, it's the same thing, you know. Which is super weird for me, because it's like, at that point, why cast Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who's a very talented actress, and people will recognize her from other roles that they really enjoyed watching her in. At that point, it's like, why not cast someone like Ronda Rousey, you know, get get an MMA fighter in there, if that's what you're going for, for someone who's more of a silent brute force due to uh, trauma, because they don't even give her a chance to really analyze and deal with that trauma, which again, would be kind of weird in a movie that's trying to take the tone that this is trying to take. Like, some of the things that really worked for me with this movie 
was, uh, of course, the scene when she goes in, she starts using the the glitter shotgun, which I got that. You know, she's not going in trying to kill people, but she does want something that's very effective. She doesn't have any problem with hurting people. She just doesn't want to kill them. She wants to incapacitate them, like, and that's what she does. But here's an interesting factoid about the movie. She only kills one person in the whole movie. Well, aside from Roman Sionis, she only kills one person in the whole movie, and it's the guy that's holding the gun to the little girl's head. Yeah. That's the only person in the whole movie that she kills. She doesn't actually kill Roman herself. That was the little girl. Technically, yeah, technically the little girl does. Yeah, because otherwise she would have just kicked him over the bridge and into the water, and he probably could have easily survived that. Right. But, <laughs> again, you know, she, she goes in, there, there's that part, which that, again, sums up the look of this movie pretty well. The other scene that I thought if they would have gone with this tone more throughout the movie, it would have been a lot more entertaining for me to watch, was the part with the sandwich, where that's her main concern. Like, she's not so much worried about, like, getting busted or anything like that. It's she doesn't want to lose that fucking sandwich because that sandwich is so perfect. So the tone of a scene like that, to where you are taking on the character's point of view and showing that, like, her brain thinks differently than, like, the average person's brain is going to think. And so I thought that was something that was fun and and really should have been that should have been so much more of the movie. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And do you want me to tell you why they didn't cast Ronda Rousey or somebody like that in the Mary Elizabeth Winstead part? Yeah, go for it. The reason is because they're going to be doing a sequel that's all about the Birds of Prey and nobody wants to see Ronda Rousey in an entire movie after the character's already been fleshed out because she can't act her way out of a box. That's why. Yeah. So the next movie that's coming on, the next sequel that's going to be happening, because there is going to be a sequel that is focused on the Birds of Prey, that's going to have the same actresses. So at that point, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is really going to be able to dig into her acting chops and actually be able to show what she can do. Whereas this literally was an introduction to those characters. Which, again, that's where that's where they fucked up on the title of the movie. Like, it didn't, it had very little to do with the Birds of Prey. And so putting Birds of Prey as the main title, that was a big fuck-up. Yeah, and I feel like there's a way that they could have done the movie to where they could have set up for a Birds of Prey sequel. Where they do introduce, you know, they got Montoya, they've got um, Huntress, and, and Harley Quinn is, is their leader. They, they could set that up, but spend much less time focusing on introducing those or giving those characters an extended introduction and a lot more time focusing on Harley Quinn, her journey, and just what what makes her an interesting character to want to watch. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a weird movie in the sense that I know what they were trying to do and it was like they almost got there. They were trying to introduce, they were doing two different origin stories in one movie and that's where they had a problem. Oh yeah. Because they were trying to introduce enough of the Birds of Prey to give them their own movie. And then they were also introducing enough of Harley Quinn to give her a sequel so that her story can branch off. Because this one was about her getting away from the Joker, becoming her own person, and then having to basically run from Gotham City. And the Birds of Prey, it was just their introduction to who they were so that they could have their own movie. And that's why at the end of the movie, she mentions they call themselves the Birds of Prey and shows that they're fighting crime. Because in the actual comic books, that's what it is. They're a crime-fighting group that fights, you know, crime in Gotham City. And then Harley Quinn has a whole shitload of side stories that they can do for a sequel. Because she has, her, her characters fleshed out like crazy once the whole Joker aspect of it goes away. So yeah, I think the sequels are actually going to be better movies in this sense. I think this is going to be one of those times where the sequel ends up being better than the OG. Well, I hope so because, you know, it's a fantastic actress. She seems to really enjoy playing the role and there's still a lot that can be done with it. 
and I'm hoping that they figure it out and manage to make something that certainly I and everybody else can enjoy. I just felt like there there was a lot of wasted potential in this movie. It did some things well. One of the things that really drove me nuts, though, was just the plot was, for, for what it's supposed to be, I felt like the plot was really small and really underserved the character and the actress because she basically got sent off on a fetch quest. Um, and then it became an escort mission where she's got one of the more annoying child actresses I've seen in a while. Oh yeah, the child was not. She was not good, which sucks. I mean, <laughs> I'm always I'm always sad when I see a child actress that sucks because I'm just like, now I got to shit on this kid. Like, <laughs> goddamn it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's 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 one of those things where I've I've thought a lot about uh, just what we do on this podcast and the way that it it is so much more fun to rip a bad movie for being bad than it is to try and talk about the strengths of a movie that is at least mediocre or even good. Right. You know, even even if we're praising a great movie after a while, that just starts to become numb to it because you're just like, yeah, yeah, no, I know the movie's great and we keep bringing up good stuff. And this movie, like, falls in between all of that because it's not a terrible movie. You know, it is an entertaining movie, especially if you really like these characters. It's it, I can see how much this could be really entertaining. Uh, there are definitely parts of it, even though I'm not a huge fan of the characters of DC, there were points of the movie to where I was just like, yeah, this is entertaining and this is fun. And if the movie was more of this, it would be a hell of a lot more fun for me to watch overall. But man, it fucking yanked the e-brake on me so hard when it just inserted the little girl into the movie. Yeah, you know, Margot Robbie, this was her movie. Like, if she, if it wasn't for Margot Robbie being such a good actress this movie would have been so much worse because she really, really, really gave a lot to the part of Harley Quinn. And, like, she really sold it. So it stood out so much more when this little girl came into play and it was just, she was so bad. And I don't know, like, if it's the way the character was written or how she was directed or what. But, yeah, as soon as she came into play, it was just like, ugh, shit. All right, this is going to be the rest. <laughs> Yeah. And the thing that really said it for me was there's the scene where, you know, she's she's in the middle of trying to recover this diamond. She hasn't quite figured out that the little girl has it. The little girl's with her. And then the little girl is trying to lie to her. And I get that the direction that they gave the actress was, hey, you're lying. You know you're lying. And she's able to see through it. And it's the way that the, the actress carried it off. It was just like, yeah. There's a way to to do it that is a lot more like subtle and nuanced and you know there's an opportunity there to make it real fun for both the audience and the characters on screen because you could have Harley Quinn just be like look like she could she could be playing along with it being like oh you don't know where the diamond is or anything like that and then just you know she reveals that no I can tell that you're lying I know what's going on and they didn't do that she was just kind of like I don't know what you're talking about. It was like very like TGI Friday, like level acting. It was very hammy. And that's the thing that sucked about the little girl's part, because there was a couple of parts where it sort of demanded that she did something that showed some range. And every time it did that, she failed miserably. You had the part, obviously, with her trying to lie to Harley Quinn. But then at the end of the movie, when she had like the gun pulled on everybody and she kind of had to have this emotional like all these people are trying to kill me and I thought you were a good person and blah, blah, blah. It just, it was so agonizingly paint by numbers. Yeah. And it, it sucked the air just completely out when that happened because that was like, you know, that was kind of a pivotal scene 
towards the end of the movie and it just it was supposed to have some emotion to it it's supposed to have some sort of an impact and then it was just like ugh like you know it came across super cheesy and yeah i don't know maybe it's not that little girl's fault i don't know i've never seen her in anything else that i'm aware of so i have no idea i have nothing to gauge it off of um and i do know sometimes that it's not the actor it's the way that they're directed and the way that they're directed to do a part but yeah she was she was easily the weakest link in the movie definitely she just really sucked a lot of the energy out of the movie it's one of those things to where the problem with a bad performance like that especially when you've got you've got decent to to really good performances from the other actors around them is that it takes you out of the movie because you get stuck getting frustrated with why are they saying their lines this way and it makes you realize like well I'm just watching a movie and so I'm just watching actresses and actors and it breaks that illusion you know in a way that when you have a good fourth wall break it does not break that illusion because then that's the character winking directly at you in the audience and being like we're having fun here right we're having fun great let's get back to it exactly yeah that that's one of the things that was really frustrating is you do have something that is trying to be like real hyperkinetic and very energetic very colorful and bright and then they just throw in like oh you got to go get this diamond and you got to protect this little girl because she has the diamond and it, it starts to become something to where why are we doing this why is this the story that that we're going with maybe i missed something but was it established that there was like some kind of maternal instinct that got kicked in for harley quinn to want to look out for this little girl so there was a really subtle thing with all the characters that kind of happened throughout the film. When I say all the characters, I mean all the main characters. There was this kind of subtle thing that happened. And that's why I said the movie actually did have a little bit of a deeper tone that I think a lot of people kind of caught on to. But this is also where my brain goes with a lot of things because I deal with mental illness. I deal with psychology. I do a lot of stuff with that type of a thing. So if you look at the movie and you watch the movie, from beginning to end, the movie is about all of those main characters, all the main good good guy characters, so to speak, all of them getting over their individual trauma issues. So you have Harley Quinn, who is presented as a psychopath mm -hmm. because she's presented that way in the comic books originally and initially, but she's actually a former doctor. She's a doctor, she's a psychologist, and that's how she even met the Joker. So like, she's actually very intelligent, she's very smart. And then when she got with the Joker, she basically got Stockholm Syndrome. She got attached to him, she got infatuated with him, she fell in love with him, she started doing his bidding, blah, 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 blah. So all of her shitty things that she did were all because she was in love with this person that was telling her that if you love me, you'll do this. So when she got emancipated from him and became her own person, she was presented as this person that was just a bad egg that wanted to beat the shit out of people that wanted to just get drunk all the time that was not like didn't have really a moral compass, blah, blah, blah. So throughout the movie, as she's protecting this little girl, and as she's meeting these other characters, like Black Canary, and getting saved by Black Canary, and meeting Huntress, and having Huntress save her ass, and meeting Montoya, and seeing that Montoya really doesn't necessarily want to hurt Harley, but still wants to take her in because she's a cop. Yeah. Throughout the movie, you can see the quote-unquote psychopathy of Harley Quinn drop more and more. So by the end of the movie, when they have like that big emotional part in the amusement park where they're all talking to each other and Harley says, you know, I'm sorry to the little girl. She says, I'm sorry, I'm just not a good person. That's kind of her realizing, like, as the rest of that ending goes on, as the rest of that whole, like, third act kind of plays out, she actually realizes that she's not a bad person, that she actually does have the ability to care about somebody. 
and that she does have the ability to actually give a shit about protecting somebody as opposed to being somebody who is just a pawn and somebody who is just a, you know, a servant, so to speak. Same thing happened with, uh, with Huntress. Once Huntress killed Victor Zaz, she was done. Like, she started to, like, kind of let go of what was, you know, really fucking with her the whole time. And she shifted her narrative of wanting to kill all these people to wanting to protect people from having something happen to them that happened to her when she was younger. Yeah. Same thing with Black Canary. Black Canary, her trauma that she was dealing with throughout the whole movie is that she was abandoned. She was abandoned because her mom got killed, and she was abandoned, had to live alone, had to do everything alone, never had that sense of, you know, togetherness, never had that sense of, uh, you know, being having friends or having family or anything like that because that was taken away from her very young. So by the time it got to the end of the movie, she had this group of people that she now considered, you know, her family, her, you know, her everything. So that was her getting over that. And then the thing with Montoya is that Montoya was an addict. Montoya was a straight-up, 100% addict. She was an alcoholic, and that was her vice. Um, Before she got the phone call, she was about to get drunk, set everything on fire, burn it all to the ground, and then these people came along that she was able to attach herself to, so she had purpose again. Her whole thing is that she had to have purpose throughout the whole movie, and once that purpose was taken away from her, that's where it kicked in, and she just wanted to burn everything to the ground. So she ends up getting the purpose again, Blah, blah, blah. That's, I mean, so it was really about them getting over all of their individual traumas. The one thing that I I think worked uh, the best was showing that Harley Quinn, like, became less erratic and reckless as as everything went on. I mean, relatively speaking. But yeah, like, you you definitely saw her becoming more of, I don't want to say, like, a normal person, because that's a weird thing to say about a character like this. Right, she definitely wasn't normal. But I feel like that should have been so much of the weight of the movie And in my opinion, just when it starts to focus on, like, doing something similar with these other characters, you know, in in the efforts to set up this next evolution of the franchise, I feel like that weighed down the movie in a way that kept it from really succeeding on, on what should have been one of its biggest strengths. It did. You're not wrong. It did weigh it down. And that's why I think is that they didn't balance the movie enough. Because all that stuff that I talked about with all of their psychological issues, all that stuff was very apparent to somebody that knows the character and to somebody that has a lot of knowledge about psychology and about like trauma and stuff like that. But just to the regular moviegoer, none of that stuff's going to come across. It was a very unbalanced movie in that sense. And I think they tried to do some stuff that was kind of ballsy with the characters in that sense. And they just failed in doing it. Yeah. I mean, I I notice the stuff because that's where my brain goes, but 99% of the people are not going to notice that stuff. They're just going to see those characters as pretty one-dimensional, honestly. Yeah, and I saw it as they they had characters that they were trying to give more depth to, but they weren't the focus of the movie, and so it becomes really difficult to say, like, okay, are we going to abandon our main character, and are we going to abandon, you know, our main plot in order to focus on, like, how is Huntress going to overcome a lot of her trauma? How is Canary going to, you know, overcome the things that are boxing her into this life that she's now trapped in. Right. You know, how is Montoya going to reconcile things with Ali Wong's character and how is she going to get over her alcoholism and is she going to retain her job on the force? That was one of the big things about this is that it at a certain point really felt like a very big budgeted television show. Sure. You know, especially when it came to some of the performances 
And that was a thing to where it started to get frustrating for me personally, because what I would have really enjoyed is if it would have been a movie to where you essentially have Harley Quinn going out and acting in sort of a uh, my name is Earl type of story to where once she realizes like, oh, I'm kind of fucked without the Joker, but there's no way in hell I'm going back to him because he treats me badly and I deserve better. And it, it's it's just a story of her, you know, as she's going through and trying to right some of her wrongs so that people no longer want to kill or hurt her. And, you know, occasionally coming across people that are just like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I, I don't even care about trying to, like, make amends or anything like that. I just have thought about nothing but fucking you over and destroying you this whole time. And you could have just had a lot of fun with that. Right. And that's actually kind of where I want to change this tone a little bit because I think there's one thing that I think is universally really good about the movie and that was the action scenes and the fight scenes. I think the fight choreography in that movie was awesome. Every fight scene I thought was just tops. And that's one of the areas where Margot Robbie really stands out is because you have someone that she's a very good actress and I feel like she hasn't even reached her peak in terms of her talent. Um, But at the same time, like she's carrying this very physically demanding role where she has to be, you know, believable as an ass kicker. And she does a really good job of that. Right. You know, like have a lot of fun with that in a way that you're not so much focused on the other things that that really like bog this movie down. I agree with that. And I think, you know, by the time it came to the third act, I think a lot of the set pieces were really cool too, because it was a different look of Gotham City. Like it looked very New Yorkish. Like, it looked like the Lower East Side Bowery of New York a lot, um, which I thought was pretty cool. But the other thing about the look of it, like, that whole third, that final act in the amusement park, that was very cool. And that fight scene that they have with all the thugs in the amusement park, that was a very cool use of environment. You know, bouncing off things left and right and, like, using the different parts of the amusement park and stuff like that. I thought it was a very cool way to do the fights. And I thought there was a lot of stuff that they did with the action sequences that were actually pretty inventive. You know, so I think there was, I think there was a lot of potential there. Um, and they should have focused on it more. Yeah, I felt like they did two things there that really worked. And I feel like that scene was one of the high points of the third act of the movie. And then it just slipped down a little bit after that. But I, I got I got vibes to where I was like, okay, I, I feel like they're really wanting to do this whole like roller derby fight you know, where it's like, okay, this is where you see these different characters coming together and becoming the birds of prey. Yeah. At the same time, during that fight scene in there, I was like, man, this feels like something straight out of the 60s Batman series. Like, I almost expected it to start doing, you know, the pop, zam, boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and it was kind of a cool throwback feel. And also, like, the amusement park itself looked very 70s. You know, it had, like, that kind of, like, old, creepy 70s vibe to it. Yeah. And I think that whole visual aspect of it I thought was pretty cool at the end. You know, it's just, it's one of those movies that I think they tried to do a lot in one movie, and it made it too choppy. There was no middle narrative enough to get across to most moviegoers. Which sucks because, again, my personal opinion, I love the movie, but I also do see the things that they fucked up on. Yeah. Like, you know, I've seen the movie three times now, and it's because the first time I watched it, I went into it completely blind. Second time I watched it, I kind of watched it to see if I just missed anything when I didn't pick it up. And the third time I watched it was just because I wanted to watch it again. So, you know, I've got, like, these completely different um, outlooks on the movie across the board on all three viewings. I truly do like the movie a lot. 
Like for me, it's an eight out of 10 movie, but I can also step back and I can look at it objectively and see how most people are not going to see it that way. I'm real curious as to how I'm going to feel when I go back and rewatch this movie. Like, am I going to end up liking it more? Are there going to be the things that I didn't like? Are they going to stand out for me even more? I feel optimistic about it. I feel like if I do go back and rewatch it, and I think a lot of it has to do with just having this conversation with you and understanding the things that you really like about it, that, you know, it's it's going to make the parts that, that do work stand out a little bit more. And the things that I felt a little ambivalent about, maybe I'll discover like, okay, there there is something here that I do like well i think one thing to notice that maybe you'll notice on a second watch is that out of all the people in the movie as far as the acting goes the only person that really was a bad actor in the movie was the little girl everybody else actually did really well like with the part that they were given the little girl was the only one that was kind of just she was the one that sank it as far as that goes yeah but the rest of the actors like in general even victor zaz even though his part was very bleh his acting and portraying the part was actually pretty solid and roman sionis his part was pretty one-dimensional but he actually had fun with it like and i think this is stuff that i noticed when i watched it a second time is that the actors really did give a lot to the parts that they were given but the little girl was just the one that, unfortunately, she had a bigger part than she should have had. And it did sink a lot of the movie. I mean, I'll agree with you on a lot of that. Because even even with Chris Messina, who played Victor Zaz, it, it was uh, the thing that, that always jumped out to me was just the writing for the character. But I don't know if maybe they just thought that was a good decision of just like, no, we don't need to give him more nuance and balance. Like I said, I, I really, maybe if I go back and rewatch it, I'll start to pick up on some of the things that I'm kind of hoping for. But yeah, I think it would have been... <laughs> It could have been something really interesting if it was just like, look, there is a relationship between Zaz and Sionis that's much more than employer-employee. Right, and I think also if you look into what the actual, if you look into the comic book canon of who Victor Zaz is, you'll see why his part in the movie is what it is. Because he really doesn't have much else. Like, that, he doesn't have any other... There's no reason to give him any other depth because his character doesn't have any other depth. Yeah. He's just, he's a psychopath for hire. That's all he is. Yeah, and I feel like there's always an opportunity to take something that, you know, the source material might be one-dimensional and then use that as an opportunity to flesh it out and add another dimension to them. Give them something that makes them interesting and keeps people, you know, watching what their character is doing and trying to understand, like, what it is that they're thinking. I would have loved for them to do that, to be honest. I mean, if they would have done that with some of them. I think even with Black Mask and with Roman Sionis, I, I think they could have actually done a lot more with him. Yeah. Because his character actually is interesting. It's got a lot of layers to it. Well, and if you're going to get an actor like Ewan McGregor, I mean, the guy is extremely capable and i feel like over the years very versatile very versatile actor yeah i feel like over the years they just haven't there have been a lot of things that are casting him on his name and not really trying to maximize his talents in a way that you know i mean the guy is up there with like hugh jackman yeah he's right up there right up there yeah with he's him. right up there with him i mean he can do song he can do dance he can do physicality you know he can do fight choreography he can do extremely dramatic roles and everything so i mean he's a fantastically gifted actor they gave him some room to run but there really should have been a lot more that if you're going to have this character in the story you know give him a lot more weight and that would require taking some weight away from from some of the other characters, taking away a little bit more of their focus. 
I think that's one thing that ends up happening in a lot of comic book movies that kind of shits the house, so to speak. It's that when you have a superhero movie, you have to have a capable villain, and you have to make the audience give enough of a shit about the villain for there to be, like, that big standoff at the end for you to actually be dedicated, you know, to caring about that. Yeah. And that's sort of the problem that they had with Black Mask, is that at the end of the day, he just seemed like a knockoff Joker. You know, and so yeah, you're right. They they definitely could have done more with him, and they should have done more with him, um, especially with who they had playing him. Um, and that, unfortunately, that just is something that happens with a lot, a lot of comic book movies. Yeah, you know, the prototype of good guy to bad guy is still going to be Batman and Joker, but very few movies, very few comic book films, superhero movies ever achieve that because the villain ends up being just you know fodder for the superhero. Oh yeah. I mean, even Marvel has that problem. You know, aside from Thanos, if you go throughout the rest of the Avengers movies, the bad guy is basically just there, you know? Like, that just kind of, that happens throughout all of them. That was one of the reasons why I really enjoyed Spider-Man Homecoming, was the best part of that movie is the Vulture. Oh, yeah, Vulture was great. You know, the way that he's such a real person that at one point in the movie, he just walks up and it's like, oh, he's Peter Parker's love interest, Dad. And they have no idea who the two of them are. And that was something that was interesting and fun. Anytime a movie can replicate that, it absolutely should try to do. Because, you know, another Marvel movie that uh, you and I briefly talked about previously, Black Panther. That was part of the thing is I thought that Killmonger could have been a fantastic character. Right. Not only do they really underserve the character and the actor with what his plot arc is, but they also kill him off in that movie. Spoilers for Black Panther. But, okay, well, now you've lost the opportunity to have this character come back and do something. Because one of the biggest things that, that Marvel has done, one of, the, one of their biggest successes, has been Loki. And how much people have loved that character. Look, you got to find these, these undervalued parts and make the most of them. Because then you take your film from being something that you're hoping does well at the box office to something that really becomes a cornerstone of a franchise, of a cinematic universe. Yeah, I mean, like, you mentioned Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, Spider-Man Far From Home did the same thing. Like, Mysterio was a huge part of the film, and he was very fleshed out, and he was very well done. That type of a dynamic, I think, needs to come back in most, if not all, superhero films. If you're going to have a superhero, you have to have a capable villain that people give a shit about. Yeah. Or it's just going to be very flaccid. That, that's what happened with a lot of the Spider-Man movies prior to this, you know? They would either overload the movie with villains, or you just wouldn't give a shit about the villain. You know, like, aside from Green Goblin, nobody gave a shit about any of the villains in the rest of those movies. Yeah. You know? Like, if you go through all of them, nobody cared about Electro, nobody cared about Rhino, nobody cared about Sandman, nobody cared about any of those. Because they showed up for, like, 30 minutes out of a two-and-a-half-hour movie, you know? Oh, my God. And, and the, the one that they did the the worst, the one that they did the dirtiest, was Venom. Ugh. Which, Venom is one of my all-time favorite comic characters. The whole reason I, I was excited to see Spider-Man 3 when it came out was because I was like, Venom is in this movie. I want to see Venom. And they fucked that up. Dude. And then they made the Venom movie. They could not have dropped the ball harder on a comic, on a character than Venom. Dude, yeah. And that's going to be, see, that's interesting, too, because that's going to be, like, the 
kryptonite to the Venom movies is because Venom is an anti-hero and he's more anti than hero. So I like Venom. I love, absolutely love Venom. I've loved that character for such a long time, but the movies are always going to be bad. They're not, they're not going to be able to do a good Venom movie because the, the yin to the yang is never going to be there properly. Like as much as I think Woody Harrelson playing Carnage is going to be awesome. The movie's probably going to suck. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say that, but it's true. And that's like, I think that's why the movies, the comic book movies that have failed, have failed the way that they have. You know, for other reasons, obviously, too. But like Ghost Rider, we talked about that earlier. That was another one. Ghost Rider should have been rated R. And also the villain was Blackheart, Wes Bentley. Like, that was a terrible, terrible villain. Yeah. I mean, Ghost Rider is literally supposed to be fighting Satan. You could have done so much with that. And instead, they gave him this very, very weak-ass emo Wes Bentley character that was just... It didn't do anything for the movie. So the rest of it was just Nicolas Cage going Nicolas Cage crazy. (laughs) Which, to be fair, is very entertaining. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like That's the whole reason to even go back and watch those movies, is just because it's Nick Cage, Nick Caging out. You're just like, oh, here he comes! Fucking, like, watching him, you know, have a fucking painful orgasm as he's becoming the Ghost Rider is fucking so much fun to watch but yeah you have to sit through so much shit just to get to that right one of the best youtube videos in existence is a video literally just called nicholas cage losing his shit and it's i want to say like four and a half five minutes of just chopped up scenes from nicholas cage movies of him just caging out and it's hilarious it's so entertaining like (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah just the clip of him like going into the strip club in the deadpool i think it was Oh, yeah, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. When he does the high fucking yah? Yeah. Dude, that, like, give that an Oscar. That clip alone is fucking great. Or the Bad Lieutenant Port of Call. That entire movie is an absolute piece of shit, but every single time that Nicolas Cage is on screen, it's brilliant. It is so brilliantly unhinged, it's amazing. I really would love to get a look inside of that guy's head and just kind of understand, like, why he does the shit he does because you know we're, we're singing the praises of Ewan McGregor earlier Nicolas Cage is just as talented as a lot of these other actors I mean he can't like I, I don't know that he can do the song and dance stuff uh, I can't really recall if I've ever seen him do anything like that but in terms of like when he makes good dramatic choices the guy is amazing and he's he's made some films that I absolutely love but then there's other stuff you watch and you're just like you're like, holy shit, like, what kind of, like, crazy 80s B-movie did this guy crawl out of? Yeah, absolutely. Because it is so bizarre the way he'll say lines, he'll do actions, he'll just seemingly out of nowhere just fucking lose his shit in a way that you're just like, that couldn't have been scripted. That has to be 100% of him. And if you just sit back and you're just like, you know what, like, we're on a fun ride, like, let's go for it, fuck it, let's do this. He'll take you there. You've seen Mandy, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude, he's so great in Mandy. And that's the thing. Mandy was one of those movies where I think the director just told him, you get to go as crazy as you want to in this movie, so have fun with it. And then he did, and it was such a good performance. And also, if you haven't seen it, the newest one that he did is called The Color Out of Space. Oh, no, I haven't. Watch that. It's an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, and it's along the same vein as Mandy in that sense. And boy, when he gets to go Nick Cage crazy, he gets to go crazy in the best way possible. Oh, dude, I got to check that out now. Yeah. One thing that I I did want to bring up, how fair do you think it is to compare uh, the Harley Quinn movies to the Deadpool movies? 
Um, I think the only comparison is that there are rated superhero films. Aside from that, they're apples and oranges. They're two different. Yeah. Well, I don't want to uh, keep repeating a lot of the same things, but I think that there is a mistake that they made in Deadpool 2 that they should have seen and tried to avoid repeating with Birds of Prey, and that is having your character tied to protecting a small child. Because I think that's when you kind of look at like what was disappointing about Deadpool 2 versus the first Deadpool. Uh, a lot of people do not like um, the child in that movie, Russell. Right. You know, I, I get it. Like, that actor, if you haven't seen Hunt for the Wilder People, if that was your first introduction to that actor, you're just going to be like, ooh, what the fuck is this? I agree. Yeah. But if you've seen that movie, then you're just kind of like, okay, like, he's, st- he's still very annoying in this movie, but I, I get why they cast him. I get why the role was written this way. Um, you understand it a little bit better, but still, like, that is some of the stuff where the movie really kind of, like, sags is whenever it's Deadpool with Russell. I think that's something that they really should have taken as a warning when it came to making Birds of Prey to, to be like, hey, let's not be reliant on a child actor at all for a major part of this plot. Well, and also Deadpool 2 kind of did the same issue as Birds of Prey in the sense that it focused on too many people. Mm-hmm. Like, there's too many people on it. And also the same thing that happened with the villain situation. To be honest with you, I don't even remember who the villain was in Deadpool 2. I literally don't remember. Well, it's kind of a villain that doesn't exactly exist. Right. Like, Russell is the villain. Yeah. Spoilers for Deadpool 2. <laughs> Russell is the villain, but it's the future version of Russell. And so initially, your villain is Cable. And then you you get the sense, like, very early on that, like, oh, okay, no, it's going to turn around and Cable and Deadpool are going to team up. So then your villain becomes uh, Juggernaut and then Russell becomes bad guy Russell briefly and then they prevent him. You know, it, it just – it doesn't have quite the same edge that the first movie had and that's making me realize, like, that's that's – part of what really held me back from embracing Birds of Prey is that lack of that that very well-defined, very sharp edge. Uh, it does not have that here. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's, you know, there. I, like I said, I, even though I did love the movie, I love the movie because I have a, what my therapist would probably call a problematic attraction to Harley Quinn's character. Mm. Um, just as a character because I've always been attracted to chaos, and that's what Harley Quinn is. She personifies chaos. So I went into the movie with the biased um, look already, but also I can look at it objectively, and I can see the parts of it that are missing. And you are right, it definitely is missing that defining edge that I think would have been necessary uh, for it to be more successful. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm going to say is that uh, if anybody has any interest in seeing this movie, definitely go and watch it if you haven't watched it already. Because I think, like in your case, if it's something to where there's something about it that appeals to you, you're probably going to be pretty satisfied watching it. You might notice some of the things. I mean, also, at the end of the day, it is a fun movie. Yeah. Like, it is fun. You know, it's still got that aspect of it, no matter what. It's still a fun-to-watch movie. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's trying to have fun. It's trying to make sure that it has fun, you have fun along with it. And I think it, it more succeeds than it does fail right and also margot robbie's entire like the entire story arc of her chasing a bacon egg and cheese sandwich is hilarious yeah like the fact that she has that little joy in her life that one little tiny joy in her life that she's trying to get back and it happens to be a bacon egg and cheese sandwich 
is very funny. And that's the thing that I wanted more of from this movie. Agreed, 100%. It should have it should have had more fun with it. It should have had more fun and more edge than it did. And I think it's because it kind of collapsed under its own weight because it was just trying to juggle too many things at one time. What did you end up writing this on your Letterboxd? Birds of Prey, uh, what, Letterboxd is out of five, right? Yeah. I think I want to say I gave it three and a half or four out of five. Okay. But again, that was because of, you know, I kind of am biased against it, but also because there was a lot of aspects of it that I enjoyed personally that I don't think the general movie-going public are going to look at and see. It was kind of, that one was kind of an interesting review because I reviewed it as my own as opposed to how I would review it if I was going to try to present it to a larger audience. Well, and I think that's something that's fair in, in film criticism, especially in the way that we are trying to do it, which is we're, we're not trying to come off as like uh, wholly academic and, and scholarly. You know, it's it's more kind of like these are our opinions, but we can back up what our opinions are based on sure. in terms of like what makes a, a competent film a competent film, what makes a good film a good film and what makes a bad film what it is. You definitely want to be a lot more accessible, and part of being more accessible is by presenting these things as, hey, these are my opinions, and I don't expect you to completely agree with my opinions, but you are here reading them or listening to them, and so I want to make sure that you understand that it shouldn't influence like what you feel about the movie, but more as to serve as a conversation piece for some of some of the things that you haven't completely you know fleshed out your own opinion on. If you want to understand, like, well, do I agree with this or do I disagree with this? That's what this is here to do. Right. And, and not I, so much, like, tell you this is how you have to feel about it. And I think that's how, like, how I review things in general is I always say, this is my opinion on the film. This is how I came to that opinion on the film. So I kind of want to tell you how I came to it as opposed to just being like, well, this is what I think about the movie. And, you know, let's just go from there. Like, I always try to at least point out why I came to the conclusion that I did. Um, even if it, whether it's biased, whether it's technical, whether it's, you know, humorously, whatever the case may be, I always at least try to pull the veil back a little bit and be like, and this is how I came to that. Well, and that's one of the things, I mean, uh, like I said, what, what has appealed to me about what you do is that you do put a lot of your own personality into it and it helps because, you know, it does take something that could be very dry, just flat out, like stating like objective facts and observations and just by taking it and filtering it through your own personality and then putting that back out you know it makes it a lot more fun for people yeah the reason why there are so many movie reviewers critics podcasts youtube shows that break down and discuss movies it's because that's part of what's entertaining about movies is first watching the movie and then discussing the movie with somebody else and a lot of times a good movie is going to put so much into it that you're not going to pick up everything on the first view or some films you can watch them 10 times and still have things that you miss and then there's everything that goes on behind the scenes with the pre-production writing developing the characters the actors the directors their personalities and everything it becomes this almost limitless topic to discuss and when you can sit there and like have fun with a personality as they're discussing it even if it is a one-way conversation it does heighten the enjoyment of that and it ends up reflecting back on how you view the original work that's being discussed yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. And I think also, you know, different perspectives from different people. Like, when I grew up watching movies and seeing movie critics and stuff like that, I was never a fan of Siskel and Ebert because I thought they were too far up their own ass to actually make a criticism that I would enjoy. I agree. You know, so I didn't like that. But then I also really liked when I saw, like, 
Joe Bob Briggs do like a movie review of a horror film because it was funny but it was also informative and you know stuff like that so it had the humor aspect of it but also there was the stuff that was also broken down as a movie you know so that was always my personality I always liked the ones that had a little bit of levity to it as opposed to the ones that were just so smarmy about it yeah I just I can't deal with those so even when you go on Rotten Tomatoes you'll see like all these people that are writing for, like, heavy publications, you know, like Washington Times and, like, you know, LA Times and stuff like that. They Those reviews are not the ones I usually go for because they're almost, they're too dry and they're too, like I said, they're too up their own ass. So those ones I can't deal with. Like, I just can't do it. So that's why I started to do the ones that I do because... I'm doing it from not only a movie fan's perspective, but also somebody that's worked with people in the industry a lot, and also from somebody who's a stand-up comic. So, you know, even if I, whether I'm praising or shitting on a movie, I always try to at least make it fun. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you're you're putting together a sandwich, slap a couple of pieces of bread down, meat, cheese, and then like dish it out. Right. But if you sit there and, and put some flavor and, and a little bit of flair into it, it becomes, you know, something that's much, much more enjoyable. Agree. I think this will be a good point to end the discussion on Birds of Prey, but where can people find more of your work? You can look me up on Letterboxd to just look up my name, Jonas Barnes. I think I'm the only one that's on there with that name. I looked it up. Uh, so Letterboxd is where you're going to see a lot of my reviews. Also on Facebook, I'm the only Jonas Barnes with Guy Fieri as a profile picture. That's where I put more of my long-form reviews. Instagram uh, is where you're going to find my photography a lot. So whenever I go to festivals and stuff like that, I do a lot of festival photography and concert photography and stuff. That's at Jonas Barnes Comedy. And then Twitter, that's where you're just going to find the small little bits and stuff like that. That's just at Jonas Barnes. All right. Well, again, I thank you for uh, coming on and uh, talking with me, man. It's been a great experience. Definitely, man. I'm looking forward to coming back on. I know we've had other movies that we've uh, talked about off the air that we might be talking about later on. So this one, though, I thought was it was I'm glad we talked about this because this was kind of one of those movies that I think was really divisive. And I also think that I have a different opinion on the movie than most people do. So it was fun to talk about it. Yeah, and I'm hoping that people that either are fans or aren't fans, that they'll be able to listen to this and they'll be able to understand what it is that, that someone would really like and, and someone would not be satisfied with with this movie. Because, again, my, my opinion is I don't hate the movie. I just, listening to you describe what it was that you liked about it is, is what really, you know, made it worthwhile for me to say, like, okay, that's why I watched the movie in the first place and this is why I'm going to go back and watch the movie again. And give it a second view, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I appreciate that, man. Hopefully you're not the only one that that helps with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the whole reason why we're doing this. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on, man. Definitely, my pleasure. All right.
you know what a harlequin is? A harlequin's role is to serve. It's nothing without a master. No one gives two shits who we are beyond that.